Between the Chapters, a weekly podcast discussion focusing on a chapter of the book, 25 Years of EdTech, written by Martin Weller. Here's your host, Laura Pasquini. Welcome to Chapter 24, 2017 Blockchain. I'm here with David Kernahan. Joining me to talk about blockchain, maybe not blockchain, uh, block what, and all the things related to EdTech and who knows what else we'll talk about. So welcome, David. Great to have you. Hi, uh, nice to be on the show. Thanks for having me. So this chapter um, was covering a technology that I thought would never even enter into this book, Martin. Um, Blockchain, I heard loosely on the periphery in 2017, and I really didn't see too many higher education institutions around the world using blockchain really well, understanding what it is. Um, what did you remember about that time in 2017? So 2017, I mean, um, it was a strange year in um, many, many ways. I remember it being particularly a strange year politically mm-hmm. that we were dealing in the UK with the aftermath of the uh vote to leave the European Union. In the US, we were dealing with uh, the idea of Donald Trump as an actual president of an actual country. Um, And elsewhere in the world, we were looking at the kind of ideologies, the kind of concepts that were very much, we thought we'd left in the history, and then something seemed to bring them back. And a bit like those um, wider political ideas, you could put the underpinnings of the blockchain in that. So I think pretty much everybody read a book or a article about blockchain at some point in 2017 or 2016. It was clearly being uh, talked about by technology journalists, by influencers as the big coming thing in uh, technology um, generally. And a popular party game at the time was to Google literally any activity and then the word blockchain afterwards. And the chances are you would find a project and probably an initial coin offering that suggested you could invest money in said project. Happily pleased to report that I never did. It's like, okay, so this is like when iTunes came out and everyone had an I in front of things, except this Mm. one's like mini Ponzi scheme with money involved and investments. Okay, great. Good. Um, On this episode, full disclosure, David and I are not going to explain anything about blockchains. I will reference a really good podcast I liked, ZigZag, that had a second season explained, Manoush Zamarodi explained blockchain in song and what the tech utopians bought into a pyramid scheme. So I I will put a link to that in the show notes. You may go do some reading elsewhere. We're not going to get into it. Um, But I will say the idea of having ledgers and these kind of databases that are connected, um, really connected to a previous conversation I had with Joyce on one of these episodes around digital badges and micro-credentialing, because I think I thought when I read articles um, related to anything in higher ed, that blockchain was the hope we could leverage some sort of technology to offer credentials and and share what people have learned, done, and upskilled into globally. Was that the hope and dream, do you think? So um, 
I quickly learned in 2017, anytime I read the word blockchain, I would mentally replace it in my head with slow, inefficient um, distributed database. Because that kind of basically what it is, it's like um, a massive Google Sheets in the sky that you can store information on, that people can change it, and people can see where the information has been uh, changed. So that kind of um, legibility of if something has been altered or not was a big part of the blockchain idea. And certainly at the time, loads of people were talking about online uh, blockchain, um, I suppose, records of learning achievements. So if you happen to do um, a 15-credit module about oceanography somewhere, then that would be on your record. And that would be an immutable part of that, even if you went off and did something else and the provider in question actually closed, that would still be a thing that you'd be recognized. But there's lots of other technologies that could do that, that could uh, retain these learner records in a visible and retrievable way. And all of them relied on you trusting somebody or something. Like, say, you could imagine in some countries that the government would just keep a record of all the accredited learning a person had done. And if you trusted the government to do that right, then if anybody queried your qualifications, you could just point them to that. Um, the common model in HE is that um, universities tend to persist in some form, even if they might change the way they look or their name. So you can point somebody to your university and say, look, I've got a degree in this. If you don't believe me, you can ask these people and they will confirm it for me. Blockchain was a way of doing that without having to trust anybody other than the people who um, wrote the initial uh, uh, code. I suppose that's a use case, but it is an, a narrow one in that, I mean, um, most of the things we do as humans require that we trust somebody or something. I mean, right at the moment, I am trusting you that you're going to edit this contribution and not make me sound stupid. I'm um, trusting Zoom, the technology, to convey my words accurately to you so you can hear them and record them. I'm even trusting the people who made my microphone, that it makes my um, voice sound nice. And the idea of starting from a perspective that you can't trust anything at all is, again, in um, wider political terms, a really, really weird yeah. starting point. So that, for me, was the stumbling block um, with the idea of um, the blockchain, because I kept reading about it and thinking, okay, who are these people that don't trust anyone or anything apart from code? Who are they? What do they do? It's funny that you say that, David, because not funny, haha, but funny, odd, because I'm with you on this idea of trust. I think blockchain was a hope that there was transparency, reducing fraud. In 2017, I'm going back to my blog, uh, Martin recommended a book that I read that's called The Death of Expertise by Tom Nichols. And in that book, it really was talking about uh, separating the credentialed from the incompetent and distinguishing between people who have a passing 
thing and maybe a blog that they write on uh, versus those who are verified journalists like yourself. So the idea of expertise and examining who has it, what does expertise mean? I think that all came into question in 2017. And so maybe that's why blockchain came on there um, because things were changing online. We saw some breakdown in earlier platforms, infrastructures. We saw our systems of politics also being challenged uh, for Brexit to the U.S. election to um, other platforms putting out information, whether it was fake news, misinformation, or other kind of rhetorics around. Um, it seemed like a peak uh, lack of trust is when 2017 happened. So maybe that's why blockchain was, that was a year um, is what I'm thinking about. Um, because I'm, I'm wondering why we doubt expertise these days, and those would be include our institutions that we learn from, uh, whether it's an academic one, it's one that's an organization or institution or another accrediting body. Um, so this is like going to a third party saying, we don't really trust them anymore. Can you come up with our ways that we can identify this person's learned, they have this skill, they have this credential, and they can take it mobily with them in any interoperable environment. So it's really interesting that I think the combination of the time of the year and um, why people hopped on the blockchain train, dare I say that, um, and what, can, what that yeah. means is, is a good call out. I think so. Um, so as a person from, um, from uh, Great Britain who lived through 2016 and 2017, I can't start this without quoting um, a prominent politician over here, Michael Gove, who said is a part of the Brexit campaign that people have had enough of experts. And that, although I don't think it was quite the cultural um, watershed moment that we would paint it at, it, I think it was a, um, a bit of a wake-up call for people who like either to consider themselves experts or to refer themselves as experts, that it was no longer really enough to be able to point to a qualification or um, a position and say, I know what I'm talking about because of this. That uh, the way social media was uh, fragmenting and other people were disappearing into their bubbles, it meant that you might have a reputation for expertise in a particular bubble that's not necessarily transferable to another bubble, even though you might see it as linked. So a case in point um, recently, my background is in open educational resources, open learning resources. I've worked on them, I've campaigned on them for getting on for 13 to 14 years now. So I like to think I know a little bit about them, but I was talking to somebody else about them on a popular social networking site. And they, their immediate starting point was to doubt my expertise, was to say, okay, who are you to talk about this stuff? I've got this expertise from over here. Why are you telling me what's happening and um, what I need to know about. And it was a really angry response. It was like, um, you've come into my bubble and you're claiming expertise and I can't recognize that expertise. So uh, there is something about the way we present ourselves online that a lot of people started to wear their expertise lightly, 
even if they were an expert in a particular domain. There was a sense a few years prior to that, that if you were an expert in a particular domain, you were an expert in lots of other things and could just kind of generally uh, pontificate on anything that took your uh, fancy. There were lots of academics that I saw, um, lots of people in education technology that kind of did that, that because they'd had a few conference keynotes or such like, they felt like they could uh, uh, pronounce on global politics, or oh, we're starting to see it now on the terrible year that um, Nate Silver is um, having in um, talking and writing about the COVID-19 um, pandemic. He's an expert in statistics. He's not an expert in epidemiology. And in trying to pass across that specific boundary of expertise, he's hit problems. So I, I, I mean, yeah, I think there has recently been um, a rethinking of the idea of trust, a rethinking of the idea of expertise. It's got um, good points because obviously um, nobody needs to hear more white male academics pontificating about everything that crosses their mind, but it's got its um, bad points in that it stops people from feeling like they can apply approaches from one area of inquiry to insights that way. I mean, I imagine you probably could derive some insights from Nate Silver's kind of um, Bayesian statistical models into the way the pandemic is uh, are playing out. It'd be interesting. I'd like to read it, but it's not the whole answer. Yeah. So it's that humbleness I suppose that we started to see and we started to live more visibly I think at that point in history. Yeah I think you're right um, the article that I read that year also that I included in that my blog post was around the idea of you said the word influencer uh, they're called thought yes. leaders and if someone uses yes. the word thought leader or guru or something a shaman I was like please stop um, the it's idea that you could it? develop and we could have, you, you've elevated people's voices and ideas and platforms on these platforms, like a blog, a podcast, um, mm. Twitter, wherever. And they became um, pretty active and out there. And public intellectuals almost took a second step back, even though they have the expertise, the training, the years of time putting in labor, effort, understanding. They realized that people aren't going to listen to them that way. And I, I think I wrote at the end, um, and I continually think this, though, uh, that I might know a bit of something, but I'm also still learning. So maybe it's asking mm. questions of where people are. And we know that we're not going to sway people to understand a new concept, an idea, a bit of knowledge or anything by saying, this is right. I'm right. I'm mm. the authority. It's going to ask, where are you coming from? And what does this mean for you? And what do you understand about it before jumping in on any given topic. So I put like, maybe I need to ask more questions. And this is probably why I host podcasts because I want to know what people are thinking because it's not a black mm. or white, right or wrong issue. There's so many nuances and gray in between that we never talk about and never get voiced out in certain social media platforms. Like you can have a great YouTube video that's someone's hot take and uh, spirals down a rabbit hole. You could have a great lead and community on um, different platforms, Reddit, Facebook, and they think you're the expert, 
but that's just the one bubble that's been filtered in and you're in a vacuum almost. So who knew we were just diving off this on the blockchain. Great, David, this is a great direction I want to go. (laughs) Yeah. This is what we need to get away from actually explaining the blockchain to people. But I do want to talk a little bit about the uh, politics that Mm -hmm. underlie the blockchain because that really fascinates me. And I think it was in 2017, I wrote a blog post about that on my blog. Um, I, th- I think it was the start of the year, or maybe it was the start of the previous year, that looked into the world of the alt-right and the rise of kind of um, neo-fascism. And it is possible, it's not always true, but it is possible to situate the world of blockchain, which is the idea of the lack of trust, the idea of libertarianism, um, the idea of uh, um, being outside of the control of government and having that kind of radical uh, freedom, Um, the economic ideas around the uh, gold standard and the permanency of, um, of money. All of that feeds into the world of the uh, cryptography messaging groups of the early 90s, which is where the roots of the idea of blockchain really uh, kicked off the idea of a currency that eventually became uh, Bitcoin, of course, that was um, immutable or was in many ways actually um, non-fungible uh, in that the, the, um, you could tr- track and understand the background of each individual coin and that was uh, deflationary, that there was um, a fixed amount and there was nothing else. All of it, all of it is from that particular playbook of that weird American mindset of uh, kind of um, radical um, libertarianism that kind of became the alt-right. The other concept I think about with respect to that is the idea of, um, I think it was Tressie Macmillan Cotton who came up to it, the idea of the roaming autodidact. So these are people that have generated their expertise outside of the traditional mode of going to um, higher education or having a work experience that have just actually gone and read lots of stuff and kind of chucked it all together into what they feel like might be a coherent philosophy. And from that, you get a lot of these weird ideas about the lack of uh, trust, the kind of almost anger towards the settled idea of academia and um, the university. So you've got all that um, distrust and you've got these weird other ideas from this kind of grab bag of historical sources that are not as we would see it as people who have been through academia that have not been properly contextualized or balanced. So a lot of that kind of thinking showed up in the kind of politics that were around in uh, 2017. And we saw uh, finally inflaming into uh, 
the scenes in the capital in the US in uh, 2021 and the uh, the many other violent scenes that we'd seen in the US and uh, elsewhere prior to that. Um, all of these ideas are also play, uh, are also in the underpinnings of the uh, the um, blockchain, and that for me, I think, is really interesting. The blockchain idea in this chapter, because um, we talked before, and you said this well, is Mars just sharing about the blockchain, but not how it was really applied in academia and higher ed. Is is maybe there to dismantle systems that are lacking trust these days, as you said, and, and they're also um, bucking against systems because people fe- are feeling that they're not part of uh, whatever education, formal education systems offer. Mm. And so I, I think the idea that you just said, right, that autodidact, like I'm going to learn what I want to learn and I can become an expert and I'm empowered in these platforms and spaces, um, whether it's starting their own economy with a Bitcoin, yeah. maybe whether it's starting their own, um, and we've seen this other platforms, like I think of the Stormfront and the alt-right, but these weren't new things in 2017. They just hit a fever pitch and we knew that. And th- there should be no surprise that we've had a storming of the capital in the US and we have in many parts of the world populism coming up of, I deserve this and I need to take this back. And the sense of nationalism looks different in every country, but it's still there. Um, and other and putting people into the other is still there. What happens in America and probably in the U- UK is, it's just put on TV and in media more. And so we just talk about it more. Um, not that it's good or bad. It's, the, it's just brought up more than other people want to uh, sweep under the rug. But there's these sentiments that um, people want to take back what's theirs, what they think belongs to them. And it's such a weird time that um, I, I'm, I'm glad that Martin put this in. Um, he doesn't talk about the politics like we are now, but no, no. It, it's saying like this is the underpinning of what people are feeling in society um, and the politics, the ec- economics and whatnot. Um, and it means something, though. It does. Um, the the sense that that, that that's almost in some parts of society, not in all of society, is kind of um, a pulling away from the existing structures. I mean, we've talked about the right a lot. We see this a lot on the radical left as well, of course, the mm-hmm. uh, um, kind of re-rising of ideas of anarchy to a lesser extent. You see it in the movement to uh, defund the police, um, which is another thing that plays into and plays with our idea of authority and where authority is situated and how people enact and use and experience that authority. I mean, obviously, if if you're in the US or the UK for that matter, and you're black, you have a completely different experience of the police than you would if you were um, white and uh, comfortably middle class. And that's another aspect of the same thing, that we are really taking a solid long-term cultural look at these structures that we've built. And we are starting to think about what it would be like if we pulled these structures away. Um, A book here that I keep thinking about is called 
a libertarian walks into a bear, um, which is uh, by uh, Matthew Hongoltz Hetling, uh, uh, came out last year. And it looks at the experience of the of a town that decided, okay, it was going to have no taxation, so it was going to have no public services, but everybody was going to look out for each other. And it, I mean, this came from kind of um, a libertarian perspective, but you could easily see it as an, an anarchist um, community would probably act in the same way. And then, I mean, this is a town in, I think it was in Vermont, um, and then all these, all these um, bears start turning up and stealing food and destroying things. So the book's actually about, okay, um, what does this community that's suddenly faced by an external uh, uh, natural um, risk, but it doesn't have any structures to support itself I mean, what does that actually do at that point? How does it respond? It's absolutely fascinating. But that kind of feels like what we're starting to see now. I mean, I mean, with the uh, the uh, pandemic, um, even though we are in the midst of this, we're questioning the structures that we have. We're questioning the idea of public services um, as they are currently constituted we are still having to deal with something that's outside of a particular community of a, of a particular society that is an international issue that does not um, discriminate really in any way other than it preys on those who are weakest already. And you think at some point there's going to be um, a reckoning between these two uh, trends that, I mean, possibly the conversations that started in uh, 2016 or 2017, and of which we are seeing the blockchain as an aspect or an indicator of, that that's going to have to stop in some ways. And we're going to have to think, okay, there are certain things that we can only do as a society, as um, a community that has uh, defined uh, public services and a defined idea of the public good. Yeah, Martin, you stirred a lot up in me as I'm thinking about this now. I'm like, this is why I'm reading Outlawed by Kara North, which is like a mm. uh, Handmaid's Tale meets the Wild West fiction yeah. novel. Um, also why I'm reading Think Again by Adam Grant. Like, I think we started questioning what we thought to be true and this last year, um, pandemic, social, racial unrest, and everything else that's coming out that's inequity in our society that we thought was um, okay, or just maybe people ignored because that was easy and comfortable for people mm-hmm. of a certain class, gender, um, race, are now going, maybe we aren't doing it right. Uh, so, um, Martin, your, your chapter, although not written intentionally for a pandemic, has brought up some things um, but from this chapter, he's not really talked about this. And you mentioned this earlier, David, about blockchain itself, other than the the hopes and dreams of this magical solution. Yeah, um, he deliberately doesn't uh, do that because all of the hopes and uh, dreams have 
turned out to be largely false. That although in 2016, 2017, there was lots of experimentation uh, about the use of blockchain in all kinds of spaces, as far as I've been able to find out, there's uh, nothing that really has happened that's come anywhere close to having a, a lasting impact on the way we live. I mean, even on the idea of, I mean, it's a big current debate in the UK, probably as elsewhere, the, the, the idea of the vaccine uh, passport, mm. that you think, okay, this needs to be um, an immutable, uh, publicly visible and transparent record of which people have been vaccinated and which people have not that could, pe could potentially be um, used in helping uh, private businesses decide which people and which people not to admit to certain events. Uh, you'd think that would be the kind of thing that people would be shouting um, that this is um, a blockchain uh, solution. Um, you look at the the uh, uh, current arguments around trade in um, Northern Ireland after the exit from the European Union and the massive problems that that is causing. And again, I think there was an actual um the rightful minister, I think actually Martin Weller quotes him, that says, I'm not sure what the solution to this is going to be, but it is possible it could be blockchain. So the fact that we've not heard that recently and the fact that all of the early experiments with blockchain appear to have uh, fizzled out, it suggests that that hope um, was, as we predicted at the time, was kind of misplaced, that it was another big, shiny uh, technological thing like artificial intelligence, like the um, reusable learning object, like the iPad that was supposed to revolutionize everything that actually ended up not. Yeah, I, Although, I wonder, I want to know what non-fungible token NFT that we would write about if Martin was in this, writing this chapter now, I oh, want to know. I was just wondering if we needed to <laughs> to talk about NFTs. Now, <laughs> these are flat out the strangest thing I've ever come across. So, I mean, the idea is you're not, you. it looks like an art market that you're uh, kind of buying a digital work of art. You're actually not, you're buying a receipt that says that this is a work of art that um, you, in whatever sense that this is meaningful, actually own that artwork. Um, it doesn't preclude other versions of that art, artwork being sold. It doesn't conclude, uh, preclude the fact that you will probably see the artwork all over the web as a digital image. But it's trying to say something about ownership and there's no actual ownership, uh, which I just don't understand why people would want to um, pay money, and in some cases, a lot of money, to have the right to say, okay, in certain ways that I am not actually able to define, I own um, this picture of a cat on a skateboard. Um, but you don't really own anything. You just own a receipt. So you're saying that my Faces of Martin collection I'm going to put out there to the NFT world and higher ed to buy is not going to sell? Is <laughs> um, it's the same with any market. I mean, if you can convince somebody that it is it is in valuable. some way valuable, I mean, I 
I know Martin has an OnlyFans account and he does <laughs> share a lot of images um, kind of via that. Um, if you can convince people that an image of Martin uh, Weller and the right to like uh, claim that you in some way own that is valuable, um, then you can sell it. It's just, it kind of concerns me that it is being touted as an alternative way of um, funding the arts because a lot of the, the time, the people that are selling the tokens are not the people that are actually creating the artwork. It's true. Um, so I'm not going to get into the NFT market. I will say the uh, the NFT skit on Saturday Night Live was quite good and very informative. So if you want to learn more about that, I'll put it in the show notes. So before we wrap up the conversation, I was wondering, is there anything we should have the community think about? Um, we all, I always like to pose questions to Martin or anyone listening. Um, what are some things we should be thinking about that maybe blockchain did not provide us, but something we should consider now going forward, especially because I think some of these technologies are still going to be um, imposed in some of our systems in academia or in our organizations or institutions. Um, what are some things you're thinking about, David? So in terms of this conversation, we've uh, uh, touched on the idea of trust. We've touched on the idea of um, societal and uh, cultural structures and our trust in those and the way that they enact the authority or the position that they have. And we've talked about the idea of expertise. I mean, all of these are things that um, blockchain was supposedly set out to solve um, and, of course, uh, did not. But all of these still remain live issues. And the, the, the big question is that are we going to continue to expect and to see people uh, putting their uh, faith into these kind of uh, uh, constructed cultural entities? Or are we going to see something else start to uh, happen and have to respond to that? And how do we, as people that are tangentially around the um, higher education space that are um, tangentially around the, the uh, technology space enact that uh, trust. I mean, uh, people are are lied to in these in these spheres quite a lot of the time. I mean, you only have to read the work of somebody like Sarah Goldrick Rab to understand the way in which higher education more generally. Um, lies to people about the support they uh, could be offered, about the opportunities that they will gain. And uh, uh, technology literally lies to people all the time. I mean, as we talked, there's yet another Facebook scandal. Um, I don't think anyone now trusts uh, 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 Facebook, and, and but yet a lot of people still use it. Yeah. So how do we see the position of uh, uh, trust going forward after this. Who do we trust? Who do we expect people to uh, trust? And why do we expect them uh, 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 to do it? 
Yeah, I think we're going to have continued needs to for verification and sharing of what we've done. And trust is a huge issue, right? And there's part of the blockchain that I don't think it's translated. And my secret librarian self is that interoperability. Yes. Um, wh- where will things transfer down the road? How do we store these credentials? Um, and also thinking about digital assets or smart ways that we could design them. I, I think some of that trust issue also means talking outside of our own institutions um, and organizations. So there is a lot of um, calling from the ivory tower to other places instead of working with other places. And that's something that um, I I have done for a while until I left higher ed. I was like, why aren't they thinking more about privacy? Why aren't we talking more about data exchange? It's because we're not talking across our verticals, even at our own organizations and institutions. Um, So if you're on a campus, who are you talking to across your org about some of these concerns? It probably doesn't happen because we're very siloed. This doesn't change when you enter the corporate sector. Same, same. It just means that you have to make the efforts to not just chirp from your tower, but talk to people and make actions and plans that we could create these levels of verification, shared records. Um, We just don't do this a lot. And this is what this chapter reminded me because it builds on like that portfolio, e-portfolio chapter, the digital badges. It's the same issues threaded between all of these is um, how are we going to set the ground rules, implement some sort of system or practice that can be understood in this global economy and in the world of work, because this is not an issue that's going to just leave in a four-year or two-year degree. It's going to mean like more for the world of work as we continue mm-hmm. to upskill and learn. And so I, I think this is the challenge that higher ed is going to face in the coming years is ongoing relationships with learners of all kinds. Um, and, and we haven't solved it. I don't know if blockchain will solve it, but it will be an issue still I'm to guessing, face. No. <laughs> yeah. And I think you're absolutely right. And I know we're kind of running out of time in this conversation, but you uh, touched on the idea of um, long-term storage of digital artifacts, which although we do have the internet archive and there are various national and uh, local instances of projects like that around the world, um, it's it's still not a problem that we have solved. How do we dis... Um, decide which um, digital artifacts are something that um, we should spend time and money on um, preserving for future generations and how quickly can we do this uh, 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 given that a lot of the time that we're dealing with stuff that's actually really ephemeral. Well, we've solved no problems here, but we've put a lot of questions out. Yeah, we're going to put some questions out to the ether. Um, I think, thank you so much, David. I'm really grateful that we could have this conversation. And if it's a starter for some, yeah, I really appreciate it. I'm going to be thinking about this for a while and hopefully our listeners will as well. And maybe, maybe they have answers. I hope they have answers. Um, If they have this, is there like an address that they can write in and tell us? Yeah, you can um, at Sears Ed um, on Twitter or DM. Uh, there's a link on the website, the 25 years of uh, edtech.ca. Um, we are also taking your audio input. So if you want to send an audio clip, you can write us, send a clip, tell us we're, we're wrong and debunk us. That's fine. Happy to, happy to take that. <laughs> 
<laughs> Thanks Excellent. again, David. Okay, thank you. You've been listening to Between the Chapters with your host, Laura Pisquini. For more information or to subscribe to Between the Chapters and 25 Years of EdTech, visit 25years.opened.ca.